Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. So we have some candles going here, and we want to remind you about these candles. Uh, last week, we lit the candle of hope, and I talked about hope during the sermon, which we're doing uh, throughout the Advent season here. We're going to talk about these things. Uh, the second candle is a candle of peace. Now, it wasn't really clearly articulated in the reading this morning. Uh, the people who put that together for us are thinking about preparation, but it's a preparation for peace. So, peace. And then the joy candle comes. I believe that's, the, uh, that's going to be the pink one. Uh, and then there is the love candle. And then there is the Christ candle. And that is the Christmas Sunday candle. And we hope that everybody will be here on Christmas Sunday. Uh, actually, in some churches are asking, do we have church on Sunday, on Christmas Sunday? This has got to be a uh, secular phrase. It's got to be a pagan phrase, but bet your bottom dollar we have it here at, uh, we have it here at Dayspring. And we have it here because we think of all days, this is uh, Sunday's a great day to be in church regardless, but particularly on Christmas Sunday. So we hope that you'll join us on that day. Most of all tonight, we're really, really excited about the children's program. So come out. Uh, you know, we say we, we, uh, we want to support our kids, but one way we're going to support them today is by showing out for their, for their program tonight. So hope you'll be here at 6 o'clock. If you have your scripture this morning, love to turn, love to have you turn to the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> and the Gospel of Luke is interesting for a number of reasons. A lot of people consider the virgin birth a miracle birth, and no question about it, the birth of Jesus was a miracle birth, but it wasn't the only miracle birth. Uh, and this is a little bit about the other miracle birth that happened at that time, and that's the birth of John the Baptizer. Uh, and so his mom, when he got to be, ve- she got to be very old because God wanted it to happen, made Elizabeth pregnant with John the Baptizer. And uh, you can find that in uh, Luke 1, 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Now, Zechariah is the daddy. And he prophesies about this baby. And he's just as excited as he can be because he's an old man. They didn't think they were going to have a kid. Now, all of a sudden, this child shows up and he's going to be a major player in the Jesus movement. And so we're going to go down to um, verse 76. Goes for a while. Goes all the way down to 80. Uh, Now, I want to remind you that our church is called Dayspring. I know that's not, a, that's not news to you this morning, but you might not know how we got the name Dayspring. Uh, we were just searching, uh, you know, people starting to show up over at our house that we might plant a church. And uh, I, I looked at my wife and said, well, sweetheart, what are we going to call this church? She goes, well, what do you think? I said, well, my, it would be really nice if we were something biblical. So let's, let's go to the Bible. So she opened up her King James Version. Now, she doesn't use her King James Version of the Bible anymore. But she, for some reason, she opened up her King James Version of the Bible. And she turned to the first chapter of Luke. And saw the King James Version of what is the NASB. So what I'm using this morning is sunrise. So the King James Version for sunrise is day spring. She looked up at me and says, how about day spring? I said, that's what we're going to be called. Very nice name, isn't it? Dayspring. So, verse 76. And you, child, also will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, this is talk, Zechariah prophesying 
to John the Baptizer, who's a child. I'd be interested to know what John the Baptizer was doing while uh, Zechariah is prophesying this to him. But you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, and you'll go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise, with which the day spring from on high will visit us. And what will that sunrise do? What will that day spring do? Shine on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Jesus this morning, help us understand peace. Maybe in a bit different way than we've ever understood it before. Amen. So I have been absolutely enamored with the Beatitudes my whole adult life. Uh, memorized them early. Uh, in fact, I got so fired up after I memorized the Beatitudes, I ran ahead and memorized the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I was in seminary and I just took a month and did it. I was just so excited about it. I started marching back and forth in my room and literally memorized phrase by phrase the Sermon on the Mount. But obviously I began with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes were called by Stanley Jones, the self-portrait, or at least the beginning of the self-portrait of Jesus. So when you see the Beatitudes, they're not just verses, pretty special verses. And John Wesley said that's the sum of all true religion in eight particulars. So there's eight Beatitudes, eight things there that are very important if you want to know about Christianity. I liked that. And then, of course, the last one is blessed are the persecuted. The one before the last one is blessed are the peacemakers. And I've always wondered more and more as the years have rolled on, how can I be a peacemaker like Jesus was a peacemaker? Well, I think, and I'm a professor of evangelism and discipleship at Wesley Biblical Seminary, I think that the word peacemaker is the quintessential evangelism term. I think when you invite someone to know Jesus, you are peacemaking. When you walk with Jesus in your heart into any room of your life, you are in position to make peace. That they might know peace with Jesus like you know peace with Jesus. That they might know peace with God like you know peace with God. And so that's just how I've always looked at it. It's a great evangelism term. Now, there has been, in the last several years, a word, and it's used largely on the mission field, but not totally, a person of peace. And so a guy named Tom Marshall wrote an article about this, and I basically based this on that article today. Tom Marshall writes, in the New Testament, the person of peace is the one who opens the way for the gospel to enter into a social group or into a village. So Jesus taught his disciples, when you go, and he taught this to his 12 and taught this to his 70. Remember now he has 12 disciples, then there's a larger group of disciples following him, which are called the 70, or in your Bible might be 72. And Jesus says, when you go into a village, I want you to look for a worthy person. It says in one of these passages, Matthew 10 and Luke 10, but the other one says, look for a person of peace. Stay with them and stay with them until you leave. But that person of peace is going to be able to open up the way for the gospel 
to their people. And their people are typically who they're friends with or who their family is with. In fact, the experts here today say that if you are normal, you have about six to eight unchurched friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. Now, friends are friends, associates, people you work with, relatives are relatives. So these are the kinds of people that you related to, and many of them don't know Jesus, and each one of us has about six to eight. What's really exciting is when you grab someone that's unchurched and they find Jesus, they have made peace with God, then they have, because they're new people in the faith, 10 to 14 So you and I have six to eight. We've been following Jesus for a while, but they have 10 to 14. So that's how revival gets going in a church is more and more and more and more people who are new come and they've got whole and they become persons of peace. That new convert becomes a person of peace for that whole new group of people, their friends, their relatives, their associates and neighbors It's a pretty exciting concept. So they tell missionaries today, when you go into a village, when you go into a new area, when you go into a region, look for the person of peace. God has prepared that person for you almost assuredly. Now you might look for a year, you might look for five years, you might look for 10 years, but eventually the Holy Spirit is preparing for you a person of peace in that region, and it's that that's going to be the hope of this region, the hope of this village, the hope of this area. Find that person of peace. Now, it's all over the Bible. Man, you can see it in the Bible. One of my favorite places is when Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a guy named Levi, Matthew, sitting in a tax booth. And he says, follow me. Now, Levi's got to be thinking, Moi? Me? <laughs> do you have any idea about me? Do you have any idea what I do? He was a tax collector. If you're a tax collector, they basically saw you as a betrayer of the nation. They basically saw you as someone that was a thief. And you were performing the theft against your own people. I mean. So they're looking at Levi. Levi hears these words, follow me. Can't believe it, but he got up and followed him. And the next scene is at Levi's house. And Levi has invited all his business partners, which is to say fellow thieves, fellow tax collectors, fellow... Huh, I used to have an old track coach that said, you rascal. Fellow rascals. And they're sitting around a table and they're eating a large meal. And Levi gets an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. Levi was a person of peace. Now, what's interesting about this is the person of peace may not have accepted Jesus as Lord yet, but they're open to the gospel message and they're opening, uh, they're an opening to their unchurched people. And so look for that person of peace. They might not be with us yet. They're going to be. And right now they're going to be a great opening to that. So, so Levi, he welcomes Jesus. He opens his home and he invites all his friends, person of peace, Levi, person of peace. Then One of my favorite stories is Jesus, it says, he has to go to the other side. I've always loved that phrase. That was an idiom in the day, which meant kind of what it means today. The other, you know, have you ever heard this growing up, other side of the tracks? Uh, So on the other side of the tracks are, you know, some problem situations. Uh, That's not where the rich people live. Uh, That's where the crime is. And so go to the other, well, same thing. When you went to the other side, you were going to a place where you're thinking, no, no. So where they went was the Decapolis. And the Decapolis 
uh, were people that didn't think like we thought. It was Roman architecture, everything set up by, uh, by the secular culture of the day. They said that there were demons running around. They say there were demon-filled people running around. They said that pigs were just roaming around. And, you know, Jews didn't do pigs. And so, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Taking us over across the sea. Do you know what's over there? I must go to the other side. And I think this is why. The Spirit had been preparing a demon-possessed man to receive Jesus. The demon-possessed man, if you remember, lived among the tombs, harming himself, harming others. Evil spirits were all about him. In fact, how many evil spirits were there in this? The biblical text says legion. I don't know how many a legion is. That's a lot of demons. And so the Lord says, out! And they went and went into the pigs that were nearby. And those pigs ran into the sea and destroyed themselves. Now, he then was in his right mind. And he says to Jesus, and this has always kind of baffled me a little bit, but then you think about it. This guy's now a person of peace. And he comes to Jesus. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to go with you. I want to go back to the other side of this thing and live like you guys live. And Jesus says, no. No, I want you to go back and tell your people. <laughs> tell your unchurched people. Tell all the people that have seen you demon-possessed. Tell all those people that think you're a rascal. Let them know what has happened to you. And so, that's what he did. And this demon, formerly demon-possessed man, is now a person of peace. Go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, again, one of my favorite, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago in uh, Dayspring University. A formidable example of a person of peace is found in John 4, where the woman at the well, right outside of Samaria, she's had five husbands. The one she's living with now is not her husband. She's a mess. And uh, she comes to Jesus, and Jesus welcomes her, talks with her, challenges her, shares himself with her, and pretty impressive results, because she runs back into the village, and she invites everyone in the village, and she had kind of a reputation. People knew who she was, and they said, come and meet this man who has just changed my life. And it said that many Samaritans that day believed on the Lord Jesus Christ because of this woman who is now a person of peace. You see how this thing works, y'all? Uh, Book of Acts. Cornelius is someone that is going to become a significant person of peace. Peter's had this dream, kind of a weird dream. Uh, it's a dream of a sheep being lowered down from heaven with clean and unclean animals. Now, unclean animals means do not touch. If you touch, you become unclean, and everything you touch becomes unclean. Icky. And so don't do this. And pretty much, all of a sudden now he's thinking, you mean my life is supposed to be enmeshed with the unclean? I don't get it. So he's thinking about this as the dream goes away. He's thinking about all this, and some men arrive all of a sudden. They look like important men. They look like strong men. They look like men. And they said, come with us. There's a man named Cornelius, a military man of the Italian cohort, and he wants to see you. Peter goes with them. 
God's been in conversation with Peter. God's been in conversation with the man, new man of peace. He goes to Cornelius. And this military man says, I want to hear from you. And after hearing from Peter that day, Cornelius opens up his home, calls his friends in to hear the gospel, and all his friends get turned on. They're full of the Spirit. And Peter and his companions baptize him that day. (laughs) Cornelius, a Roman man that kills people, maybe even kills Jews, is now a man of peace. And he invites all his people to become people of peace as well. So the Apostle Paul meets up with a lady named Lydia. You can find this in Acts 16, just outside of Philippi. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to hear Paul's message. So she opened up her home while Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke stayed in Philippi. And the amazing things God did in that house church in Philippi. And she and all the members of her household were baptized. Each of these examples of Jesus and the disciples, they make it a practice to approach a person of peace that it looks like has been spirit-informed and spirit-prepared. Jesus spoke to the crowds. No question about it. He preached a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. No question about it. But I think he did his most significant work through specific individuals that God had prepared for his purpose. And so he commanded the 12 and the 72, just like you've seen me do, I want you to do the same. Go into a village, find the person of peace, stay with them until you leave, and watch to see what I will do. Everybody that's here today, If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a person of peace. And you've got to allow this Jesus of peace to move in your life and through your life into people that desperately need to know Him. And you all know those people. I heard somebody else call a bridge of God. What is the bridge of God from that person that doesn't know Jesus to Jesus? The bridge of God is you, you. Or that bridge of God. They're going to walk right across your relationship into the Father's loving arms. Y'all, that's your destiny. That's what He's called us to be. That's what He's called us to do. One day, I'm told it was around Christmas, maybe even it was Christmas Day, There's a man over at the United Methodist Parsonage that is about three doors down from our house on Forest Avenue in Great Bend, Kansas. And the man's looking out, and he's just kind of looking out, watching it snow. The snow's piling up. It's about a foot, foot and a half deep. And he sees a man out in front. And this is probably 58 years ago. He's a man out front. And he senses God saying, you're going to become great friends with that man. The man inside was named Lauren Dyke. The man outside was Jerry Friedman. The boy on the sled was Matt Friedman. 
they became great friends. He helped bring my dad to the Lord and discipled my dad in the Lord. And I'm a Christian today in large measure because of Jerry Friedman. God made him a man of peace in my life. And not only that, but we had five kids, four of them at least, know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. Two of us are in the ministry. One of them's preaching right now, just like I'm preaching right now. I mean, it's a pretty cool story, y'all. That's what happens with persons of peace. And I'd like to think maybe that Jesus has done some things. I'm a mess. But Jesus has done this, some things through this mess into the world that happened because 58 years ago, a man of peace saw another man of peace who made a man of peace. It's what can happen with your life. It's an amazing thing. I thought, what's the best way to tell this story to end up the sermon today? I don't know. I said, sweetheart, what do you think? She didn't know. Then I remembered. A book I read maybe 30 years ago, maybe 40, by a guy named Scott Peck. I've never forgotten the story. And I just want to end today telling you this story. Now, most of my stories are 60 seconds long. This happens to be 180 seconds long, so I'm just going to tell you straight up. you got to pay attention. I mean, you got to pay attention. Are you ready? I want you to pay attention so well you can tell this story on the way home. Here we go. There was a monastery that fell on hard times. And this monastery basically had five old men in it. There was an abbot, and there were four other guys. And these five men were worried about what's going to happen to this monastery. What's going to happen? I mean, we're not long for this world. What's going to happen then? And they're worried sick about it. On their land, there was a little hut. And people sometimes came and stayed in the hut to seek God. And there was a rabbi that was from nearby that occasionally came by. And the monks knew that this rabbi was such a godly man, they just kind of felt his presence when he was on their land. And one day he comes to that hut. And they tell the abbot, do you suppose that you could go speak to the rabbi? Maybe he has some advice for us about how we could keep this place alive for God. So the abbot says, that's a good idea. We all love the rabbi. And so he goes out to the hut, and the rabbi and the abbot see each other. They embrace. They're good friends. And the abbot says, we are struggling. We are dying. Is there any advice at all you could give me to help us save our dying order, our dying monastery? And the rabbi said, oh, man, I feel for you. But no, I, I don't have any advice. In fact, all I can tell you is, the people seem to have inwardly died everywhere. Back in my synagogue, no one wants to come anymore either. And so they spend the rest of the day sharing insights and loving on one another, talking about the Bible, talking about the Torah. 
And finally, it's late, and Abbott knows he's got to go. So he gets up to go. They embrace one more time. They're both teary-eyed. They've loved the whole day. But the abbot says, oh, I, I failed. i got to go face my brothers now. And I've got to tell them what advice you gave me. So I'm going to ask you again, what advice would you give to save our dying monastery? And the rabbi says, again, I'm sorry, I don't have anything. And so the abbot starts walking away. He says, except this. One of you is the Messiah. The abbot looks around. (laughs) And the rabbi closes the door and goes back in. The abbot thinks, what in the world does that mean? The Messiah? What? I don't know. He goes home, and these guys are waiting for him. They want to know. The rabbi's a wise man. What did he say? What did he say? He says, he didn't have anything to offer. I mean, nothing. He had nothing to tell me, except this. He said, the Messiah is one of us. And they all thought, what in the... Is he gone nuts? Is he crazy? The Messiah is one of us. Then they started pondering it for the next days, weeks, and months. The Messiah is one of us. What could that mean? And so he started thinking. You know, if the Messiah is one of us, it's probably Father Rabbit. I mean, he's the leader. He's godly. He's for a whole generation led the way. It's got to be Father Rabbit. But then they thought, well, you know, maybe not Father Rabbit. Maybe it's Brother Thomas. He's a holy man. Everyone knows Thomas is a man of light. It might just be Brother Thomas. Then they thought, it ain't Brother Eldred. Oh, no. That guy's crotchety, always has an attitude. But you know, when you think about it, he always has a valid point to make. You know, I don't know, maybe it is Brother Eldred. But it can't be Brother Philip. He's passive. He's a nobody. I mean, a real nobody. On the other hand, he always has a knack for being right there when you need him. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Then they all thought, Rabbi couldn't have been talking about me. (laughs) Oh, Lord, please not me. But what if it is me? What if I'm the Messiah? Well, this is what happened. They started treating Thomas like he were the Messiah and the Father and Eldred and Philip And on the off, off chance it might be them, they start to treat themselves as the imago dei, the image of God. They start to treat themselves as if I might be someone special too. Well, something started to happen. They started treating each other with extraordinary respect on this off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. People still occasionally came to the monastery. They would picnic on the lawn, they would walk along the paths, they'd sit in the chapel. And there was just this atmosphere of love. <laughs> There's this atmosphere of hope, of peace, this atmosphere of joy and of love, this atmosphere of Jesus that seemed to be on this place now. And people weren't really conscious. They couldn't really pinpoint what it was, but they just were found themselves attracted to this place now. So they started coming more often. And pretty soon, they started bringing their friends, and their friends brought their friends. 
And people just love being at this place, this place of hope and of peace and of joy and of love and of Jesus. And they began loving being in this monastery. And then some younger men started showing up. And they started saying, hey, can we spend the day with you guys? We'd just like to be around you. This is an extraordinary experience. We just want to see how you operate and how you love one another and, and how you love God. And pretty soon, one of the young men says, hey, could I be part of this monastery? Could I be one of your guys? Could I be a monk? And then another said, man, that's an idea. To spend our life serving the Lord here on this place? And then another, and then another, and then the dying monastery was dying no more. It was vibrant, and it became a beacon of hope. A beacon of peace, of joy, of love, and of Jesus. Y'all, it's just a story. But I've got to believe this. That's exactly what the early church looked like. They weren't saying, hey, is one of us the Messiah? They were thinking, this person's made in the image of God. Whether they're rich or poor, whether they're addicted to wine, or whether they're addicted to themselves, or whether they're addicted to God, they all belong in a family that will love them and accept them and bring them deeper in God. And I believe the early church grew substantially because of hope, peace, joy, love, Jesus.